have your Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do. If you can open with me to John chapter 7, the Gospel of John chapter 7. Welcome to week 19 of our journey through the Gospel of John. And I want to begin this morning kind of with a, a question and see if anybody can, can guess it real quick. So what is the foggiest place on planet Earth? Any, any right guesses? So um, the foggiest place on planet Earth is found or placed off the Newfoundland coast um, in Canada. It's called Grand Banks. It has 206 days of fog a year. Now, the foggiest place in the U.S. is in Washington State. It's a place called Cape Disappointment. Now, what a fitting name that is. And Cape Disappointment sees nearly three and a half months of thick fog each and every year. So these places are without a doubt foggy, but let me just say that was kind of a trick question because the foggiest place on earth, spiritually speaking, is the human heart, the sinful human heart. When it comes to seeing truth and especially the identity of Christ, the human heart is often foggy concerning Jesus. And now fog can be a beautiful thing. It, it, it kind of it renders things in a soft uh, a magical, soft way, but also it can be a very dangerous thing because it hampers our ability to see, our ability to, to perceive. And in John chapter 7, there is a fog that has settled in upon the hearts of people concerning Jesus. What we see in the next two chapters is basically the, the hate for Jesus will ramp up um, in, in huge ways. But we see a fog that has settled in. It was a fog of uncertainty, a fog of unbelief, a fog of conflicting opinions. Jesus was misunderstood uh, about his mission. He was misunderstood about his, his message. And we know his friends, his family, and even his foes were bewildered about who he was. They, they didn't understand what he was doing and why. And this remains even true today. But in this passage this morning that we're about to see, our, our view of him, even though people, the, the fog was setting in, our view becomes even more clearer of who he is. And just think about this. Who is Jesus Christ? What's the word on the street? James Montgomery Boyce describes the responses that various people on the street gave to the question, who is Jesus Christ? He says, a young woman responded, Jesus Christ was a man who thought he was God. A biology student replied, Jesus Christ is pure energy. God to me, which be careful, anytime you say those words, be very careful. God to me is energy, electric, electric energy, because it's something that's not known. Others responded, Jesus is the one that we look up to as our leader, Others, he is an individual who lived 2,000 years ago who was interested in the social betterment of all classes of people. Another answer was he was liked, he meant well, he was a good man. And then others were just confused, answering, I have no idea. I don't know who Jesus was. And think about this. Think about the claims on the street, and then let's once again think about the claims that Jesus himself made all throughout the gospel. Jesus claimed that he came down from heaven, that he had eternally existed. He claimed that he had been sent into the world by the Father. He claimed to be the Savior of the world and the only Savior of the world. He claimed to be the, 
determiner of everyone's eternal existence. He claimed to be the source of everlasting life and the only source. He claimed to be the only way to the Father. He claimed to have the right to be honored and worshipped on an equal basis with eternal God. He claimed to be one with the Father. He claimed to have the power over life and the power to raise the dead. And he claimed that he could even raise up his own self, himself from the dead. He claimed to be the one of whom the Old Testament scriptures spoke. He claimed to be the one that all of the Old Testament scriptures pointed to. He claimed to be the supreme judge of all mankind. He claimed to be without sin. He claimed to have all authority in heaven and on earth. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. He claimed that if you knew the truth, Himself as a truth, it would set you free. He claimed to have rule over the Sabbath. He claimed to be greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than Jacob, and greater than Abraham. And he claimed that even before Abraham was born, he was alive. He claimed to be the only bread that could feed our souls. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed to be the door of salvation. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. And he claimed to be the anointed one, the Christ, the son of the living God. These were the claims, some of the claims of Jesus. And let me just say this, many have their opinions concerning him. Many have their opinions concerning him, but Jesus, praise God, came to us and his light pierced through the fog that had distorted our view of him and his light made it clear who he was, whether we see it or not. Oh, oh to God that we would see it. So this morning I'm going to ask you if you're able, if you can stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read John 1, or John 7, excuse me, verses 1 through 24 together. And it says this, After this Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. For Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? 
yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As the choir sang earlier, Lord, speak, O Lord, for your glory in our lives. Speak, O Lord, today in a way that drives out the fog that is setting in in our own lives. It drives out the, the fog of circumstances, the fog of doubts and fears and anxieties and worries and sicknesses and all of those things. Drive out that, that, those fogs today so that we can see you clearly. Speak, O oh Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So this section, verse 1 of chapter 7, begins with the words, after this. Now what John wasn't saying is right after the events of chapter 6, but instead what he was saying is at some point after this. And why do I say that or how do I know that? I know it because in chapter 6, the Passover was at hand. Now the Passover was always in the spring. In chapter 7, the Feast of Booth was at hand, and the Feast of Booth was always in the fall. So at least six months had passed. And what we see is that John wasn't trying to give us a chronology of the events of Jesus' life. John is giving us an anthology of events that prove that Jesus is the Son of God and that we should believe in him for life. So the question becomes, then what was Jesus doing during those six months? What was he doing? And praise God, we, we know what he was doing. Because when you survey the other Gospels, especially the Gospel of Mark and, and Matthew, you will notice that Jesus spent a majority of those six months personally with his disciples. He was pouring into them, even in Matthew 17, revealing himself to them. So he's teaching them. He's sharing life with them. He's revealing himself to them. Even in Matthew 16, he begins to reveal that he's going to be killed and betrayed and rise from the dead but he's just speaking to them he's living with them for this is how disciples are made and just remember this morning our calling is not to make converts our calling is to make disciples the calling of Jesus isn't for us to lead people to pray a prayer pat them on the back and walk away thinking we've done something good for them our our mission given to us by Christ is to lead people to Christ lead people to know him to make him known and to do the same in other people's lives and the point is Jesus modeled that for us think of it like this suppose you are a really great evangelist and you lead 1000 people to faith in Jesus every day that's just how great you are and at the end of the first year, you would have 365,000 new believers. Now, this is the principle of addition. 1,000 people added every day. Suppose you were another person that just led one person to Christ and spent that whole year uh, building that convert's faith, leading them to grow into maturity, preparing them to spiritually do the same in someone else's life. So at the end of one year, you have two disciple makers 
So think about that. If the evangelist continues to lead a thousand people a day to faith in Christ every day at the end of the second year, you would have 730,000 people now come to know Christ. Now the two disciple makers at the end of the second year would have invested themselves in two more people. So now you would have four disciple makers. 730,000, four. If the evangelist, if you continue to lead a thousand people to Christ every single day, at the end of 10 years, you would have reached 3,650,000 people to Christ. At the end of 25 years, you would have reached 9,125,000 people to Christ. But let's just say these disciple makers keep on investing. Each disciple maker invests in one more person each year. The numbers simply multiply. At the, at the end of 10 years, you have 1,024. Now, that, that doesn't sound much when you think about making converts 3 million, but at the end of 25 years, you would have discipled 33,554,432 people, over three times more than the addition process. And here's what we see. It almost as if Jesus knew what he was doing when he said, make disciples instead of make converts. Make disciples. We are to be a church that makes disciples who makes disciples who makes disciples to the end of the earth. In order to do that, we have to understand and follow what Jesus did to make disciples. Jesus spent a few days with the crowd, but he spent six months here with his disciples. And as Christians, we are called to intentional, long-term, personal disciple-making. We're not just called to preach to crowds, um, call people to respond, get on Facebook and say, 100 people came to Christ, look at me, and then walk away and not leave them at all whatsoever. No, we're called to walk with believers in the highs and lows of life, teaching them to obey the commandments of Christ, and then teaching them to do that with other people. Here's the deal. There are people in this room, you are a Christian, but you're not a disciple, and you're not a disciple maker. And what I say that, and you might say, well, how, how dare you? Well, are you following Jesus in every way of your life? And are you leading anyone else to follow him with you? Listen, if, if we're not following Jesus, you're not a disciple. And if you're not leading people to do so with you, you're not a disciple maker. Meaning, hear this, you're disobedient to Jesus. You're disobedient to him. So, didn't mean to start off that deep, but brothers and sisters, that's our calling. That's our calling. Jesus doesn't call us to sit in a pew and be happy. He calls us to invest our lives in other people for his glory. Amen. Oh, that we would do that. And before we dive into our truths today, what about the Feast of Booths? We read about this here, and the Feast of Booths would have been one of three pilgrimage um, feasts that all Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem for. You have Passover, you have Pentecost, and then you have the Feast of Booths. Well, the Feast of Booths was an exciting week-long celebration where the people rejoiced and celebrated God's past provision. They remembered God's faithfulness uh, over them in the 40 years of them wandering in the wilderness after they left Egypt. And they also, and they, as they remembered, they also were trusting God for his continued provision to continue to provide for every need. And each family was to celebrate the Feast of Booths by basically building booths or building tents in open fields, some right in the street, some people on top of their, their roofs. And the point of doing this year after year was to look back on God's supply 
while at the same time anticipating God's future provision. Again, understand what God has done, he is doing, and he will do. God has provided, he is providing, and he will provide. This is the picture of the God that we serve. So in layman's terms, this would have been a nationwide campout, a nationwide camping trip. And in the midst of this ongoing camping trip, let's behold the light of Christ shining like a campfire through the fog, not in just the lives of those in Jerusalem, but even in our own lives. So there are so many things that I could have uh, brought to the surface today, but I'm going to bring forth, choosing four things, four different types of fog that we need to have Jesus shine into our fog, into our, our lives, and open our, our eyes up to him. So seeing Jesus through the fog, truth number one is this, seeing Jesus through the fog of unbelief. Seeing Jesus through the fog of unbelief. So in this chapter, we see unbelief in many different forms. Beginning first, don't miss this, with with Jesus' own brothers, his half-brothers. But in Matthew 13, 55, Jesus' brothers were named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Now, Jesus' brothers, they come to him in, in John 7, and they want him to go up to the Feast of Booths, and basically they want him to show his works to the world because who doesn't want to see miracles? Who doesn't want to see a street performer performing awesome deeds? And yet John tells us in verse 5 here that his brothers, even his brothers, didn't believe in him. Which reminds us, don't miss this, it reminds us that proximity to Jesus is not a guarantee of spirituality. I mean, these brothers, they, they grew up with Jesus, they lived in a house with him, they followed him, yet they weren't believers. So proximity to Jesus doesn't guarantee spirituality. Now in the Gospel of John, belief in Jesus means that he is the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he's the Savior of the world. Therefore, Jesus' brothers, they're not asking him to go up to Jerusalem to show himself as Savior of the world. They just want him to go up to show himself as the miracle worker. Unfortunately, they are simply asking for what everyone else had already asked for. And what we've seen is in John 4, Galilee rejected Jesus. In John 7, Judea rejected Jesus. In John 5 and 6, the religious leaders rejected Jesus. In John 6, we saw last week, the crowd rejects Jesus. Jesus, and now here, his own family rejects him. If anyone should have believed in Jesus, it should have been his family. And for some of us this morning, let me just speak this truth. For some of us this morning, the most opposition that we have faced or will face is from our family. It's from our own family. Some of us have or will be mocked for our faith, will be scolded for our faith, will be belittled for our faith, or will have our past thrown up to us again and again and again. Yet let me say this this morning, take heart, because Jesus knows what it's like to have unbelieving family members. Jesus knows what it's like. Take heart in knowing that our God is familiar with our struggle. Take heart in knowing that the story is not over for your unbelieving relatives. Think about this. What unbelieving family members are you concerned about right now? What unbelieving family members are you praying about? And let me just say this. If you're not praying for any of them, then obviously you don't don't understand the reality that apart from Jesus, they don't get to go to heaven. They don't. 
It, it amazes me the number of people who sit in church, they hear the gospel, they would say, yes, apart from Jesus, they would say, oh, my family members never made a decision for Christ, not living for Christ, their family member dies, and all of a sudden, they must be in heaven. That's not how it works, brothers and sisters. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way that all of a sudden, you don't care about your um, family member's uh, spiritual condition at all whatsoever. Then they die. They must be in heaven just to make you feel better. That's not the way it works. If my family or your family doesn't know Jesus, they don't get to spend eternity with Jesus. That's the reality for us. So what family members are we concerned with? What family members are we praying for? What family members are we continuing just to share the gospel with every chance that we get? There is hope for family members who don't know Jesus in the story of Jesus' own family. For a season, Jesus' own family don't believe. They don't support his ministry. But thankfully, after the resurrection of Jesus, go figure, they believed. After his resurrection, they began to believe. Jesus' brother James becomes a leader in the early church, writing a book of the Bible that bears his name, the book of James. Jesus' brother Jude became a pillar of the church with Peter, also wrote the book of Jude that bears his name. Let me say this this morning. Brothers and sisters, number one, you better care for the souls of your family. Because apart from Jesus, you don't get to spend eternity with them. Apart from Jesus, you won't see them for all of eternity. Care for the souls of your family and care for the souls of the world. But don't lose hope. Keep praying. Keep speaking. Keep pointing to Jesus. Keep telling them the way that Jesus is speaking into your life every day. And let God does what he does. Let him do what he does in, in their lives. So we see the unbelief of family, but also we see the unbelief of the crowd. Look at verse 12. There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. astray excuse me. There was division concerning Jesus, reminding us that in Matthew 10, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring division. I came to bring a sword and divide people. And in thinking about verse 12, don't miss this. To say, to say he's a good man, which is what some said, is not enough. It's not enough to say that Jesus is a good man. That's infinitely below the truth of who he is. Now to say, as they also said, that he's a deceiver or a demon, let me just say this, that's from hell. That's straight from the pits of hell. Neither of these is a right assessment of who Jesus is. And we're all called on to make an assessment. We all have to make an assessment of who he is. We have to decide who Jesus is. As C.S. Lewis said, good men don't say they're God. No, liars and crazy people say they're God. But Jesus said he was God, so what is he? But think about this. What keeps people in their unbelief? When we think about the, the fog of unbelief, what keeps people in their unbelief? Belief over and over again in the Gospels, we discover that the first difference between those who come to Jesus and believe in him and those who refuse to come to Jesus and take offense at him is that the first group understood their need to be forgiven, their need for a savior, and the second group never would understand that. Never would come to terms with that, meaning this, no Pharisee would ever write Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. No Pharisee would ever write those words. 
Some of the immortal scenes of the Gospels have exactly that theme. Think of the immoral woman who comes to Jesus and she is crying and wiping his feet with her tears and her hair. And it's contrasted to a man named Simon the Pharisee who's complaining, saying, Jesus, if you knew who she was and what she did, you wouldn't accept that and receive that. And Jesus basically says, she loves me because she's been forgiven much, but you, Simon the Pharisee, you don't love me at all because you don't see your need for forgiveness at all. Or Jesus tells about the the, the um, tax collector in the temple who basically is praying and standing and all he is saying is Lord be merciful to me a sinner as compared to the Pharisee who's saying God thank you that I'm not like this tax collector or Peter who falls on his knees in Luke 5 after Jesus um, brings in a catch of fish a multitude of fish and the first thing Peter does in seeing the fish is fall down and say depart from me I am a sinful man Jesus doesn't point out Peter's sin But Peter, in understanding who Jesus is, immediately understands his sin. Think of it, brothers and sisters. Is there a fog in your life right now? Are you refusing to see Christ for who he is? Are you refusing to let Christ be in control of every part of your life? Behold him. See him for who he is and see yourself for who you are. So through the fog of unbelief, but then secondly, seeing Jesus through the fog of God's timing. Through the fog of God's timing. So look at verse, verses 6 and verse 8. It says, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. In verse 8, Jesus says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not fully come. Timing, as they say, is what? Everything. Timing is everything. Throughout the gospel, Jesus com- continually said, my time has not yet come. Now, we saw back in John 2 That time was the hour of Jesus' death when he would die for sinners and make purification for our sins. Jesus' entire life was moving towards that moment. Of the 89 chapters in the Gospels, excuse me, 29 chapters deal with the last week of Jesus' life. Of, Of those 29 chapters, 13 of those chapters deal with the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. In the gospel, there are 579 verses that speak of the final day of Jesus on this earth. That was the hour. That was the focus of Jesus' life. So there's an overarching theme that everybody who reads the Bible begins to pick up on, and that theme is Jesus was always on a timetable. If you have an idea that Jesus woke up every morning, stretched, and go, well, what should I do today? You're wrong. That is not the picture. Every second of Jesus' life was a timing issue. Jesus was on a divine timetable. And the point here is that Jesus' timetable was not their timetable because Jesus' purposes were not their purposes. And let me just speak to us this morning real quick. Just follow with me here. Sometimes we get frustrated when God doesn't do something on our timetable. We have everything planned. We have everything ready to go. But then God fails to do our our bidding. You know, our lives will go a whole lot better if we just recognize that our timing and God's timing might be two different things. Might just be too different. Now think about this. How many of you believe that God is always on time? Okay, let me say this then. How many of you also have ever questioned God's timing? It's amazing how God's always on time. Question God's timing. Let's be honest in church. I've done that too. 
You know, we've all been in situations where we're like, God, I know your timing is perfect, but maybe, just maybe, you weren't watching the clock in my life in this moment. God, maybe, just maybe, you're not paying attention to what's happening in my life in this moment, but praise be to God, he was and he is. He was and he is. Here's the deal. When you and I order something online, we get to pick the date the actual day that we want it delivered. We get to go online and have our groceries delivered to us when we want them, or we can go pick them up at the time that we so choose. Yet that's not how it works with God. God time moves at different speed than our time. God has a purposeful time for everything, and according to Ecclesiastes, he makes all things beautiful in its time. And if you get mad at that, I'm sorry that you can't be God, but I'm glad that you're not God because you couldn't save me. So I'm thankful that God is God, and he makes everything beautiful in his time time. However God chooses to use our times, it's critically important that we stop viewing things from our relative, unreliable, earthbound perspective, and that we understand that according to Psalm 31, our times are in God's hands. Psalm 31:15 says, your time is in God's hand. Your time is in his hand. We, we need to understand, if we're dealing with a timing issue, I know sometimes we, we think that way. God, you, don't, you must not know what I'm going through. If you don't have what you think you need in this moment, it's because you don't need it. Because the exact moment you need it, you'll have it. How do I know that? Because God promised it, and he does it again and again and again and again. So seeing Jesus through the fog of God's timing leads us to number three quickly. Seeing Jesus through the fog of God's will. Through the fog of God's will. Just think about how much confusion there is concerning the will of God. You know, we treat God's will as if it's lost and we have to somehow find it. I'm looking for God's will, wondering where God's will is, trying to have a decoder ring to find God's will. And yet listen to, to Jesus in verse 17. Jesus says, if, anyone will, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Think about that question. Think about what Jesus just said. And here's a question. Do you want to do his will? Do you want to do his will? What an important question. Are you willing to do what God wants you to do once you discover what God's will is? Donald Gray Barnhouse said, I can say from experience that 95% of knowing the will of God consists in being prepared to do it before you know what it is. If you don't have the will of God that you think, it's probably because God knows you wouldn't obey it. If you're willing to obey it, you'll know what God's will is. If you are willing to obey God, you will know his will. That's what Jesus said. If you're willing to do his will, you will know. You will know. If you're willing to do the will of God, you will know. So often when we think about God's will for our lives, we're wanting to know this. What should I do? That's the question that most of us are asking in the back of our minds or screaming to the heavens, God, what should I do here? What should I do here? What should I do in this moment? And what we do is we elevate those I don't know what to do moments in our lives as the times that we cry out to God the most. And we want an answer from God the most. So we listen intently because we want to know what to do. Yet thinking about the will of God in those terms is asking a secondary question when there's a primary question that we need to ask. 
Listen, the primary question is one that I think the Bible spends the most time addressing. But because we are oftentimes down in the weeds or we are walking in the valley and have so many things thrown at us or we are treading water in the midst of a storm that we, we elevate the decision point. And in our minds, we say, well, if I make the wrong decision, my life is over. And if I make the right decision, then things might be good for a little while. And that's how, that's how we think. But let me just say this this morning, and please hear this. God is more concerned with a decision maker than he is with the decision itself. That got two amens. God is more concerned with you as a decision maker than he is with the decision itself. Meaning this, every decision that I make is a product of who I am. So I would say the better question, instead of asking, God, what should I do? The better question is this, God, who should I be? Who should I be? God, who do you want me to be? What are you trying to to show me in this moment? God, what is it? In what ways are you working in my life in this moment? What do you want me to see? What do you want me to know, God, in this moment? What do you want me to become in this moment? That's the better question. The better question is, God, who do you want me to be? Are we willing to do his will? Are we willing to be conformed to him? Seeing Jesus through the fog of God's will. If you want God's will, be willing to do his will. Be willing to do his will. And then number four, seeing Jesus through the fog of God's glory. Seeing Jesus through the fog of God's glory. And why do I say the fog when we see all throughout scripture the glory of God is seen as a fire? Look at verse 18. Jesus says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. And let me just end this morning with this question. Whose glory are you after? Are you after your glory? Or are you after his? Listen, have you ever seen someone do a a glory grab? A glory grab, and on a human level, what I mean by that is a a human grab is when someone attempts to take credit for someone else's accomplishment. So the temptation for humans is to steal glory from something or someone. And that's not a new thing. Simply put, we, we battle to be thieves of everyone's glory, including God's. We want recognition, we want honor, we want praise, we want raises, we want this and we want that. We want to be recognized. And let me ask you this question. Has someone ever taken credit for something you've done? I think all of us in here can say yes. How did you feel when someone took credit for something you did? Now, I think most of us, since we're in church, and it's a place to be honest, we were angry, maybe even sinfully angry. But here's the question for us. Imagine how much more God is offended when we try to steal glory from him. If we get mad when people steal glory from us, how much more offended is the infinite holy God when we try to steal glory from him? The Bible says that everything that we, should, that we do should be done for the glory of God. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that we have treasure in earthen vessels. We have treasures in jars of clay, meaning we are earthen vessels and we have Jesus, the glory of God, inside of us. Follow with me here. Have you ever taken a drink from a styrofoam cup? And although you could taste the drink, you could also taste the cup. Anybody? So you could taste the drink. So you could taste the drink, but you could taste the styrofoam. So the styrofoam is fighting for your attention. And it's like you're drinking. You're like, what in the world is that funny taste? 
and you realize it's the styrofoam cup. And what you realize is that you're tasting the vessel. You're tasting the cup. Again, we are the vessels. But people have to see God. They have to taste him. The problem is we often get in the way. So people end up tasting us or seeing us instead of seeing the contents and tasting the contents of the one who is in us. Oh, to God that we don't stand in the way ever. Make sure that people don't taste the vessel as much as they taste the contents of the vessel, which is Christ. Let me end today with the words of A.W. Tozer, who said this. When it comes to the glory of God, he says, The glory of God always comes at the sacrifice of self. The glory of God always comes at the sacrifice of self. Do you want God's glory in your life? Do you want God's glory in your family? Do you want God's glory over your lost loved ones? Do you want God's glory in this, his church? Then are you willing to deny yourself? Take up your cross and follow him? Here's the deal. If, if everyone's looking at me, or if everyone's looking at you, or if I'm fighting for attention, they're not looking to Jesus. Let me say this as your pastor. Pray for me, please. Encourage me when God lays that upon your heart, please. But all glory goes to him. All glory goes to him. And I want to pray for you. And I want to encourage you. But all glory goes to him. Everything that we do when we gather together, everything we do when we serve um, in our community is not for our name. It is for his name's sake. He gets all the glory. And when I try to seek my own glory, I'm working in opposition to the gospel. I'm working in opposition to him. Let me end this way. The ultimate message of the Bible isn't look at me. The ultimate message of the Bible isn't look at all the things that I'm doing. The ultimate message of the Bible isn't I'm the only one serving and everybody else isn't doing anything. No, the ultimate message of the gospels and the Bible is this. Behold or look to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In case you missed that, look to Jesus. Look to him. And as you look to him, the fog of unbelief, the fog of timing, the fog of God's will, the fog of glory begins to um, dispel. And we see Jesus and we see his timing. We see his will. We see him praying, not my will, but yours be done. We see the glory of God as the ultimate picture and the ultimate uh, thought of everything. I read this week and it, and it hit me and, and brought me to my knees and thinking about, I read these words, the answer to every question, every, the answer to every God, why did you question in the Bible? So God, why'd you do this? Why'd you allow this? The answer to every question of God, why did you is this for God's glory? Why did God allow it for his glory? Why did God bring it? For his glory. Why did God do this? For his glory. May he receive the glory of our lives and of this, his church, both now and forever. With that said, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to call Brother Frank and the musicians forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. But I pray today that if there is any fog in your life that is keeping you from seeing Jesus rightly, that you would call out to him and allow him to remove that fog from your life, even in this moment. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you, and Lord, we praise you. That, Lord, you are a God that you shine so bright. And, Lord, we know the fog is real. We know that there's fog of unbelief and doubt. There's fog of, 
of timing by which, Lord, we wonder whether your timing is really right and perfect. We wonder about your will and what it is, which is really what we wonder. We want to know, God, what you're doing and how it's going to turn out. And, Lord, there's a fog concerning your glory because we're fighting you for it. Lord, forgive us for unbelief. Forgive us for doubting and questioning your timing. Forgive us, Lord, for getting mad about your will when, Lord, we're really not wanting to do your will. We just want to find out what it is so that we can have an option. And forgive us, Lord, for seeking our glory above yours. Lord, forgive us, God, and help us to see you clearly. And, Lord, I don't want to end this time this morning by praying for the people in our lives that don't know you. Somehow, some way, the devil has convinced us that they're not as bad off as the Bible tells us they are. But God, your word tells us apart from them knowing you, they will spend eternity apart from you forever and ever and ever. God, help us to care about the souls of people. Help us to begin to care again about the souls of our family and the souls of others that we work with and live around that don't know you. Break our hearts for what breaks yours, oh Jesus. And thank you as we saw from your own brothers that there is hope. There is hope for our families. There is hope for that one, Lord, that we think is beyond your grace. There is hope for them. Remind us of that again today. In Jesus' name, amen.